Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 218 for July 14th, 2021. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about a couple of surveys regarding how long people stay in the field. We also talk about how you can stay in the field. So get ready to take some notes and share this episode with your friends because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Hello. Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. And Stephen in hot Calgary. Hello. (laughs) I think as we're recording, Chris and I are the only two doing this on the 4th of July. Yes. It matters, right? Like everyone else is still, (laughs) we're still on the 4th of July. I believe it's still the 4th in Scotland right now. But for a little while. We celebrate it. We celebrate it. And it will probably be even a bigger holiday in a couple of years. I was going to say, what is it like a religious or an uh, you know uh, ethical holiday? Just to have solidarity with all the countries that have holidays. Well, you know, it's Scotland, man. We we just had a referendum on independence. Probably have another one in a couple of years. You know, there's there's a there's a lot of people who are who who understand the holiday. <laughs> Let, let's be honest. Any excuse to have a glass of scotch, right, in Scotland? Like, let's just do it. <laughs> yeah. Also, like they it, they celebrate Canada Day, which was what three the first. Yeah. So like first. you see you see Canadians walking around with like flags. <laughs> like it's the only time Canadians are like loud. Well, okay, other than like hockey, um, but, like <laughs> super loud and like uh, get get like American obnoxious on. Nice. But yeah, that, that was only a couple of days ago. So you know, it's <laughs> just a North American thing that happens. All right. Also, like, okay. you know, there's a lot of connections. Like, they uh, kept a bunch of the prisoners of war in Edinburgh Castle mm. from the uh, Revolutionary War. You can still see the graffiti there. It's, you know, good connections. Happy I think connections. there's some, I was going to say, I think there's some uh, enemies of the state that we're still, if we ever have a trial, do you still have space in that <laughs> castle? Because, like, I think on January 6th, and they're all trying yeah. to hide. So, like, maybe if it actually gets tried, do you think that you can dust off the old rooms and, you know, put a fresh pillow in there for some of these folks. We'll send them over there with Trump. (laughs) (laughs) 
Man, these are not like sort of fresh pillow sort of rooms. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that whole like they, they made everyone stand together and you had to take turns like sleeping because the rooms are so short. All right. Well, well, I don't think that uprising was really in any way similar to actual battles. It was like the chicken coop that just didn't work. Yeah. Well, speaking of unbearable conditions, Bill, you asked Facebook about staying in CRM. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's talk about that. You put up a question in yeah, the sure. Archeo Field Techs group and I think the North American Archaeological Tech Forum. And uh, I don't know if there was any others. What was the question? And, and let's talk about your responses. Yeah. You know, it comes on, it comes on the fact that this summer I'm teaching a, a class in professionalism in uh, American archaeology. And it's really based on the class that Doug took many years ago that Carol Ellick and Joe Watkins taught at uh, New Mexico State, or the University of New Mexico. Was that right, Doug? Or New Mexico State? Yeah, geez. Bill, were you like in this class with me? Did I just like miss it out? You got all the details right. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, re- I read the book and I've been teaching, you know, workshops with students here at UC Berkeley about many of the chapters. And then I just decided that I would teach it over the summer as an actual uh, six-week class. So in in the kind of run-up to that, I asked on Facebook in the uh, North American Archaeological Tech Forum and the Archaeo Field Techs group, how long do people actually stay in archaeology? And, you know, of course, I guess I couldn't figure out how to use the poll thing <laughs> on Facebook groups, or I didn't have administrator status. I was doing it on my phone. I didn't see a way to do it as an actual poll. Mm, so I have to go it. through the individual responses, and they keep growing by the day. But a lot of people were responding, you know, I mean, to preface it this way, I just wanted to know how long do people stay in CRM because I wanted to know what kind of career are we really preparing folks folks for in the university? Because all signs in all of us here in the show definitely are living examples that you don't really stick around in the same position in cultural resources for very long. And I think that's actually just the way things are in 2021, that none of us really stay in the same jobs for very long. Nevertheless, our antiquated university system does what it thinks it's supposed to do to prepare you for this lifelong, you know, 30 plus year with retirement and benefits career in a thing, right? So the idea is that you would finish your anthropology degree and then go on for a graduate degree that you would spend all the rest of your adult life until you could no longer really even work or you were no longer willing, you know, that you would spend decades of your adult life in the same position doing the same thing, which is the thing you trained in the university to do. And I think all of us know that's not really a realistic world anymore. So I wanted to know, what's the shelf like? Like, what are the actual tenures of people at CRM companies or staying in the same position or whatever, right? So I put it on there and I've gotten all kinds of responses. And they were kind of like, basically, uh, you know, the folks that are on there are people who are actually... Uh, professional archaeologists. So they're folks who have been doing this for quite a few years. And what I what I saw from my unscientific analysis is that there's a strong group of people who have been there 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and they're super proud of it. And they respond real quick. And then there's a few people that are like, I just got in. And then some other folks that are like one, two, three years. So that's also telling us either, you know, the members of the group or those who are willing to respond. Folks with lower amounts of years are not necessarily responding. But there were quite a few responses that were saying that people don't last very long. And there were some folks that were saying, oh, there's a large group of people that just finished their anthropology degree and they work like two 10-day sessions and then they never come back to CRM again. Or, you know, they only stay in a couple of years and there's high turnover. And then there was a, I was 
um, told about a survey about harassment in archaeology that was done mm-hmm. by SEAC, so the Southeastern Archaeological Conference. And their data showed, it, you know, it was really on experiencing harassment in, the, in uh, archaeology, but their uh, statistics showed that for women, there was a huge drop-off between 11 and 15 years around the age of 35, that there was mm-hmm. a large number of women in their survey that were just no longer in cultural resources. And, you know, I didn't get into the actual qualitative responses to that survey, but I can imagine how this field is not very conducive to having a family and that our society puts so much pressure on women to be the ones who take care of the kids, to stay at home and all that. So there's just, you know, it's not sustainable for women at that age too. So the responses that I saw on both of these things, they got me really thinking about, you know, what are we supposed to be doing here as we're training folks? And, you know, it also gave me an insight into the reason why CRM is the way it is, where there's in the entry level, such low balling and low wages and stuff like that, because, you know, companies don't think that folks are going to stay for more than a year and that there's not a lot of motivation to keep people there because they're going to drop out after a year or two. I mean, this brings up a lot of questions. Maybe I should do this as a more formal survey, but I think that, you know, that's the way that we should start thinking about this. So if we're trying to prepare people to do CRM and they're only going to stay in there for two or three years, you know, how does that affect our field? You know, I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately, actually, because, well, I'm, you know, I've been in CRM since, I don't know, what, 2005, something like that. And my career has changed quite a bit over the years, right? Like I, I, I went back and got a master's degree at some point. I started my own company at some point. I've taken different turns. I mean, I'm currently on a CRM project right now that my company is running and I'm running the Archaeology Podcast Network and I have a full-time job doing something else completely outside of CRM, right? That's how I'm making all this work. And I've got these three major things going on in my life simultaneously right now. And I'm also looking at like my retirement plan that I've got put together for myself and some other investments that we're looking at, just trying to make money and things work for us looking into the future. And to me, that's one of the biggest problems about a CRM education in college is you may or may not even hear about CRM, but if you do, it's like, oh, this is cultural resource management. Here's the laws, NEPA, NHPA, you know, all that stuff. But there's no career planning. Like, what does that mean? The reason people stay in one to three years is because they're a field tech. They're doing backbreaking work, 10-day sessions at a time or a week at a time, uh, anywhere in the country, if you're talking United States. And what's the upward mobility? It's not there. <laughs> like, anybody who's got half a brain in their head is looking at this career going, where am I going to be in 30 years? You know, where am I going to be in even 10 years? I'm going to still be doing this, except my vertebra will have fused together and I'll be, you know, visiting the doctor every other weekend that I can't afford. And it's like, what, where is this career going? And there's not enough discussion about how to move yourself through this career. Because if you stay in academic circles and they teach you about CRM, it all sounds hunky-dory. If you just go get yourself a master's and a PhD, then you can be a, a, a cushy professor for the rest of your life. But that only works for even a fraction of actual academics because the departments are getting smaller. People stay in there for 50 years and they never leave. And the jobs just simply aren't there. Bill, I don't know how you even got a job at Berkeley. It, it, I mean, it's amazing that you did and never give that up. <laughs> but you <laughs> it know. was all merit, skill, and <laughs> exactly. ability. That's what it was. It was ability, skill, PhD. I, yeah. And- 
I mean, you're no, a I mean, well-rounded person. Yeah, so. the 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 professor thinks so. That's like another thing too about the professionalism because of the classes for undergrads. But of course, they're all going to go on, and a few of them think that they're going to be a professor. And if you're looking at the statistics, just overall, if you're getting a PhD, you have anywhere from like a one to a ten percent chance of getting a tenure tenure track position, depending on the year and like your yeah. field and all that stuff, right? So we're talking thousands of people that finish their PhD. One to 10% are going to get a, a tenure track job, but you can, of course, skew it for places like Harvard and Yale and, you know, Berkeley in archaeology, where, you know, half of those students will go on to do some form of teaching. Now, that's not an actual four-year um, research one position, right? A lot yeah. of that is adjuncting and totally tenuous, sketchy, you know, teaching positions, right? And all those count as actual teaching positions. So if you count in all that adjuncting and the postdocs and all the other stuff, you know, you got between like, uh, you know, 30% chance or something like that of getting any kind of any academic academia, anything. Now that's after six years of a PhD, right? So the key is mm-hmm. for folks to realize, you know, if you're going to put that in you're you have a 70% chance of getting a job in the private sector. Now, CRM is a piece of that, but of course, there's a million other jobs that folks that have PhDs, because a PhD is super rare in actual government agencies or in, you know, uh, the local water department or something like that. Like, that's an absolutely rare degree, right? In fact, Mm -hmm. so rare that a lot of employers are actually kind of afraid of hiring PhDs, right? But (laughs) if you're going to work in the United States, you're probably going to work in the private sector. And and that's just all there is really to it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Bill... So I've looked at those numbers. I haven't had a chance to publish anything on it yet, but uh, it's it's lower than that. The reason people think like Harvard and Berkeley and uh, Arizona like have slightly better chances is just because they produce way more PhDs than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So like you almost almost anywhere you go, you have an equal chance of ending up in academia. Actually, there's like a, a few really tiny programs that do better because they've only created like six PhDs and like two of them made it. So it looks like they have like a third of their <laughs> students have made it into academia, which bumps up the numbers. But yeah, like you can do a regression analysis and basically a few departments do slightly better than others, like by one or two positions than what you would expect. Hmm. But basically... Yeah, it's it's a bit of a misnomer that people are like, oh yeah, I go to Harvard or Berkeley or Arizona or, or like all the big name or Chicago or Michigan or all the big name programs, but really it's just that they produce so many PhDs that it looks like they're successful, but they're no more successful than. Uh, see, I, I'm not going to pick on any of the other programs to make it sound like there's small time, but like, yeah, just pick a pick a program that doesn't have that many PhD students. They've probably percentage wise have as many in academia as anywhere else. <laughs> so it, it's not like thirty; it's like twenty percent. Fantastic, yeah, and it, and it's even worse. I feel like if you go into uh, if you actually go into CRM, right? Because the typical the typical type of person I don't want to I, I hate saying that, but it's actually true. The typical type of person that goes into archaeology and and CRM archaeology tends to be a little more on the granola side of things. You know what I mean? Uh, Opposed to corporations, opposed to big business and stuff like that. But here's the cold, hard truth. If you go work for a mom and pop, you're not retiring from that company, right? Like if you go work for a small outfit, they've got 
a handful of employees and you happen to be one of them, you you got a field season with them this year. It's looking good for lab work over the winter or helping out with report writing. Maybe you'll get on next year. The simple fact is they do not have the infrastructure to A, keep you probably happy for the rest of your life and B, start a retirement plan for you and make sure that they're still around when that comes to fruition. And it's just, it's just incredibly unlikely that you're going to, you might find some happiness in the short term, but I don't think you're going to find happiness in the long term career wise when you're looking at the full extent of the career. But if you go for one of the bigger engineering firms, one of the larger firms as, you know, horrific billion dollar, you know, multinational corporations are, you got a better chance of sticking it out because when times are tough, they've got the money to keep your department going because they know they need you and things just keep on going. Right. So I don't know if you, if you want a career in this, it's almost the way to go because of stability. Well, I also feel like we should also address the reality that um, what we're calling a career in 2021 is you stringing together like five to six long-term gigs in any given thing, right? So, (laughs) you know, I I worked in cultural resources from like 2005 until, you know, full-time till 2014. Then I switched over to working for my university. And now I've been doing... Uh, being a professor at UC Berkeley for mm-hmm. since 2017, right? So that was still only like my longest tenure of doing any form of you know activity in archaeology from 2005 to 2014 was in cultural resources, and that was spent across like four or five different companies, right? So I think that that's kind of the way that things are, and I you know a lot of my other neighbors, you know, I just my birthday just came up. I'm 42 years old. Everybody else I know my age, they also have been in the same exact shoes. They worked at this place for seven years, then they worked at this place for four, then they Mm -hmm. got a better deal and they switched over and they've been there ever since, right? And we're talking like, you know, 20 years and they've had three to four career long-term gigs. And Mm -hmm. so that's another, that's what I feel like is the most fruitful way for us to really think about this rather than, you know, talking about how you're never going to become a professor or working in CRM, you're never going to retire at that location. I mean, I think that, thinking about it in terms of, okay, I do cultural resources for X amount of years. And then I do, you know, um, design and other kind of like policy analysis for this large corporation for X amount of years. And then I'm going to become a freelance consultant that's doing both of those things for X number of years. And then, you know, finally, I'll put all that stuff together to supplement my social security when I'm of age to retire. I mean, that's really what people need to be thinking towards that kind of a life. Yeah. And I just to wrap this segment up, I think you should always be thinking about where are you going to be in 10, 15, 20 years? And are you on track to make that goal? Where do you want to be, right? In 10, 15, 20 years. When, when I was in the Navy, one of my division chiefs gave me some advice that I will never forget. And I constantly think about it's anywhere you work, look at the people who have been either doing this, not necessarily at that same company, but have been doing this for 20, 30 years. They're at the end of their career. Is that where you want to be? Is that the person? Is that the attitude? Is that the lifestyle? Is that the physical condition that you want to be in when you get to that point? If the answer is no, then you got to start thinking about that now because it's not going to just happen for you. And you might be excited and and working in the field of archaeology right out of college because we're in July of 2021 right now. And there's a lot of new people in the field, hopefully right now. And I'm not trying to discourage anybody, but I'm saying now is the time to start thinking about the rest of your life and not just that you're on a fun archaeological dig and you're, you know, getting paid to hike for a living. 
it's that's great, but think about your career. We'll be back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code CRMARC. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 218 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we are going to shift gears only slightly because... Doug has been working with Landward on a massive study. They do this. Uh, Doug will get into how long they've done this, but they've, they've done this for a few years now. And we're going to link to this in the show notes. So if you want to follow along, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash podcast forward slash 218 or in your podcast player, the link should be right there. So if you're not driving, hopefully and doing something else that would be dangerous, you can go ahead and just click right on that and it will take you straight over to the website set up to discuss the results of this. So it's called Profiling the Profession. So Doug, set the stage. Yeah, we've been doing it for over 20 years in the UK. It usually runs every five years. This last time ended up stretching out to seven years. Basically, fairly large survey of archaeologists in the UK to find out all sorts of information, almost a, not quite a census, but closest Mm -hmm. thing we have to a a wide survey to find out where the profession's going and how trends are changing and stuff like that. So some of the stuff that's like relevant for this very discussion is we ask questions on demographics, like how old people are. And then we also ask like, you know, what sort of job do you work in? And other questions such as like how long you've been at your current employer and how long you've been in archaeology. And so a bit to sort of go to like Bill's questions or, you know, his, his somewhat informal survey, like we actually have that data for the UK and it's, mm-hmm. it's a pretty big sample. Like we basically had about one in seven archaeologists respond to it, which, you know, for opinion surveying and stuff like that, that's just a massive sample. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're pretty, pretty accurate the real might be off by like one or two percent but it's pretty close but it's just to say like a bit what bill you're seeing and i'm assuming it's going to be fairly similar because the uk fairly similar setup to the us i mean yeah different 
laws, but basically the laws follow the same sort of idea, which is, you know, polluter pays. So whoever's building the road needs to pay to mitigate the archaeology. And, you know, very similar systems. There's a few little quirks difference, but we're seeing basically the same sort of system. And then, unfortunately, you know, again, like in the U.S., and I think a lot of places, it's uh, cheapest bid wins. Mm -hmm. So it's not... It's not done on quality. It's done on, you know, who puts in the uh, the lowest bid. So there's all sorts of issues like with that and pay. And, you know, it's pretty similar, I'd say. We don't actually have, in the UK, there's not a term like CRM. Probably what we call is development-led archaeology, which is pretty much the exact same thing. But like, yeah, development-led has the youngest people because there's the most turnover. If you're going into... You know, archaeology, basically your first job, likely, far outpaces anywhere else, is going to be in, you know, development-led CRM. Mm -hmm. uh, a few people end up in maybe like local government or national government or a museum or academia or something like that. But like very tiny percentage. You're talking like handfuls of people go into some place that's not CRM. Sorry, I'm just pulling up the numbers right now. And we, we ask questions on, you know, time and current organization and over half of the people had been with their current organization for less than five years. So like 25% for less than two years, 30 some percent for between two and five years. And it's a huge difference. So you look at other places like, you know, national government bodies, like a third of them have been in their position for been with that organization for, you know, 10 to 20 years or like 20 plus years. So like the national agencies, national government. So what you pretty much consider like your federal government in the States, basically half of those people have been in that company, well, organization, you know, national body for over 10 years. And so what you're actually seeing is a lot of people, basically you, you move up or you move out. So like you either move up in CRM or basically most people move out into other parts of archaeology. So they go work for like a museum, they go work for like uh, local government, you know, what you would consider like a shippo or a tipo, or you go, you know, work for federal government. Uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. uh, BLM, national parks, something like that, or, you know, a couple of people work in public archaeology, bits and pieces around. But basically, everyone kind of, starts out but then moves elsewhere and so unfortunately you end up with basically a pretty constant turnover and development led slash crm where basically there's a, a new generation it's almost equal whereas you go to someplace else i don't know national government so what we'd call local planning authorities which you, you would be like our ship your shippo or tipo in the states all those places have like people who have like tons of experience in archaeology, you know, 20 plus years, basically everywhere else, but CRM has all people with a lot more experience. So you just get like a big churn is the data that we have for the UK. And I'm pretty sure it's the same for the US. Basically, a lot of people go, most everyone starts out in CRM, you know, and they either move into like the sort of state or federal side of CRM or to museums or you know, public archaeology or somewhere else, but there's a pretty massive turnover. And that's yeah. basically what we see in the 
in the UK, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same what you're going to see in the States, probably Canada, probably like 90% of other countries because most everyone has a very similar system. Actually, I exaggerate with the 90% because there are some <laughs> countries where it's very different, but yeah, like around Europe, 90% are going to be about the same because they all have the same system of how to do archaeology. Well, I think just anecdotally, you've got to be right, right? Like just from what we hear. And it comes down to what I was saying at the end of the last segment. It comes down to stability more often than not, right? Those those early positions in CRM where you're basically a field technician with a bachelor's degree are just inherently not that stable, depending on what area you're in. I mean, there's definitely, we all know somebody who's been doing, you know, who's been field teching, maybe crew chief occasionally for 20, 30 years. We all know that person, but those are very small percentages, right? So it's more likely that people are up or out, just like you said, Doug, like they're, they move out into something else, some other industry related to archaeology, or maybe not just out completely, or they move up within the industry into, you know, either getting an advanced degree or maybe even not, but moving into a, you know, a, a bigger company with more stability, so to speak. So yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a bigger company. It's just like, you know, some people, end up starting their own companies, Chris, um, or, you know, like, like there are some other options there, but yeah, there's with small ones, it is fairly limited because you kind of have to wait for someone to move onwards or, you know, die to get a move up in some of those positions. But yeah. But, you know, I, I was just talking about this with some people on a, on, on the field crews that we're working with right now. I was just saying this just this week. I was like, you know, in my head, I was thinking part of this because we we get questions often on online or through the email or something like that. Like, hey, I'm thinking about going to grad school. Can you recommend a CRM based grad program or something like that? Nobody ever contacts me and says, hey, I just got out of school. Which CRM firm should I work for? Right. Like nobody ever says that. They always say, where should I work? What area should I work in? Stuff like that. But I'll tell you what, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably have researched CRM firms rather than areas because that would have been more in line with what I wanted to do. Right. I've I've said it before and I'll probably say it again. You know, I, I probably would have worked for Paleo West if I had to do it all over again. I don't know what they were doing in 2005. But nowadays, they are kind of on the forefront of technology, which is where I want to be. I really enjoy that kind of thing. But they have the money and the drive and the determination to iterate, try things, fail at those things and try again. And if that's where your leaning is, if you like technology, if you like moving to those types of areas, then that's where you would want to be. And if you're in the Western United States and you're really into research and publication and really deep, heavy writing... I would recommend Far Western Anthropological Research. Is it Far? Yeah, Far West. I don't know what the last letter is, <laughs> but Far Western is what we call them. They are stacked with PhDs. They're constantly publishing and presenting at conferences and things like that. So that's really the question you should be asking as somebody new in the field is, who should I work for? You know, based on your interests and your career interests and what do you want to do and where you want to go? Not necessarily where, because I mean, sure, you might be interested in, I don't know, coastal California archaeology. Great, go find a firm. But you got to think long term here. Yeah, there's a counterpoint to that. <laughs> I, I think that sometimes it can be kind of misleading. Like um, the stuff that you see, the glamorous stuff that you see some firms do isn't necessarily what you're going to end up on just because you end up working for them. 
Of right? course. Like um, they, they might have more generic stuff and you might not actually have the opportunity to do all those fancy tech stuff, for example. That's true. If those niches are already filled, if they already have like, you know, the principals uh, loaded and the principals already have their, you know, their go-to field staff or whatever, like you might not be able to get your foot in the door for that uh, particular thing. Whereas in, in some cases, if you find a company that's not doing what you want to do, but they're interested in starting, you might be mm-hmm. able to kind of wedge your way in. That's true. You know, the downside is you're the rest of experience. So, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a little harder to tap into um, existing knowledge, but, you know, like it can get you going in, in the direction you want and can get you some really steep learning curve sort of experience in whatever uh, avenue you want to want to approach. Yeah. I mean, that's all true. And if you've been in this for a little while, if I wanted to get out of my company and go work for somebody, you're right. I may try to find a firm that is interested in going the digital route, but doesn't really know where to start and has the will and the money and the projects to do it. That might be a better plan for me is to help go build a program like that somewhere else, right? Because I could do that. But if you're just starting out, you may not have the street cred to be able to get that kind of position. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But my, my comment to you about working for a bigger company that may have already filled those niches and you won't have a chance, that's true too, but your chance is absolutely zero if you don't work for them. <laughs> so at least your chance is maybe 3% if you go work for them versus 0% if you don't. So again, thinking long-term, those people aren't going to be there forever. And if you find a company that is expanding and growing and continually improving year after year, then your chances of getting to do what you want while you're at that company are better than if you're not at that company. That's the only point I was making. Yeah. yeah and, and I would say that to that end, talk to those companies. Be like, yeah. I really like um, how you're doing X. If I come work for you, is, is there a possibility that I could be involved? That would be like a breath of fresh air too, right? Because I get, I get random Facebook messages from people and emails saying, hey, is your company hiring? Not like, oh, I really enjoyed what you did here. Not that I've done anything that they could say that for, but like, hey, I've really enjoyed what you did here, what you're doing with this. And I want to be around that and work with that, right? Nobody ever says that. They're just like, I need a job right now. Do you have one for me? That's uninspired, I got to say. So yeah, I agree. Doug? I'm a slightly <laughs> beyond Steven's side on this and disagree what? with yes. you, Chris. Yeah, shocking. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, I think part of it also... I mean, that, that does sound great. And I, I understand that. Like, I know certain companies like here that if I was to go, um, there'd be certain ones that'd be first on my list. But that sort of assumes that, like, that is the most important part of a job. Mm-hmm. And I kind of find that a lot of where you work also has to do with personalities. Sure. It has to do with, like, do you get along with your boss or, you know, does the structure work for you? Like some people really like very detail oriented, you know, checking in every like half hour on work and all this stuff where other people are just like, yeah, go do this. See you in three months. Uh, Please have it done by then. You know, there's different work cultures. And I think that's almost equally as important as opposed to the, the sort of more technical aspects of the job. And then like, you know, so, part of the things we looked up on our survey was like harassment and bullying and like 15% 
of all archaeologists are either harassed and bullied. And so like in the UK, harassment has a very specific legal definition based on protected characteristics and everything else is just bullying. But, you know, that's a huge amount of people. And this is across like all subsectors of archaeology. But like, yeah, you know, there could be a really interesting company there. And then you go there and your supervisor basically, you know, sexually harasses you out of, you know, day in and day out. That's going to ruin your entire career or your want to do archaeology, regardless of like how cool or how interesting the archaeology is. So I, I think, I mean, I get where you're going, Chris, and it does make mm-hmm. sense. But I think there's a lot of other considerations sure. to add to that. As opposed to just saying, like, find a company that does cool archaeology or cool technology things or, you know, whatever it is. I think you also really have to look and see, like, do you get along with people? Do you like their leadership style? Do they have strong policies about, like, anti-harassment? And, you know, if something happens, will they back you up? These are, like, other things. I think there are probably, at least from, from where I'm coming from, I would say are more important than the cool stuff you do. But I think yeah. it'll be different for each person. But I think it's people need to think about that. And coming out of university, I'm not sure if people, especially like if you're, you're just out of undergrad, you know, you're, you're 22, 23, <laughs> something like that. You know, if you've gone traditional, I know a lot of people go to university later in life, yeah, uh, second careers, all sorts of stuff like that. And you'll have a lot more experience. But, you know, some people just coming out, I don't know, like, I know I wouldn't have had the knowledge or the ability to be able to pick out the people I would have wanted to work for at that age because I just didn't have enough experience with like working for a bunch of different companies and finding out what works and doesn't work for myself and in general. Well, and we didn't, we didn't have something like social media either to go ask those questions of people working in the field. And we didn't have this podcast to hear us ranting about what things we wish we would have known. Right. So hopefully new people in the field can, can take this to heart a little bit and say, cause you're right, Doug, we, we can't exclude any, opinions like i was talk- i was talking about what would be important to me 16 years ago but what's important to somebody else 16 years ago might be different the point is do your research and think about your career not about i need a job right now that's important don't don't skip something just because you know you, you're i don't know get get your bills paid <laughs> but think about your long term career steven you got like 30 seconds uh well Kind of to go back to the point of, um, you know, going to the glamorous uh, businesses uh, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, are the shining example of whatever it is you want to <laughs> do more of. Regardless of whether, I, I feel like to to best get your foot in the door, and this is something that Bill could talk about a little bit more, you're going to have to have some sort of portfolio if, it, if it's something very specific that you want to do and you want to hook on to. So. Mm-hmm. You know, t- towards that end, um, you're going to want to, you know, work that CV and have that experience because if they are, you know, the the shining shining example of whatever aspect that you're interested in, you can be guaranteed that there's other people who are trying to get in and, and do the same thing. So you need to make yourself all competitive. Yeah, I mean, I I got my first real job off of shovel bums because I took an osteology class and sketched a bunch of bones and included that in my CV because it was a human remains project. 
and I wanted it. So I got it and I had literally no experience. So you're totally right. That's where you go. All right, let's take a break, come back and keep talking about this and some more things from the profiling the profession survey that uh, Doug and Landward did. And we will talk about that after the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. All right, welcome back to the final segment of episode 218 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And... I got to mention just that last segment alone, I feel like was pure gold and something I wish I'd had 16 years ago and even 15, 14, 13 years ago. Right. So if you're listening to this and you're new in the field, please share this episode. This is not like, like I don't get any money if you share the episode. (laughs) Don't think I'm trying to do this for financial reasons. Please share it to other people, your classmates, your colleagues, people on social media that might benefit from hearing some of this. So Back to profiling the profession. Doug, one thing I thought was interesting is the number of people that did the survey was, I guess I'm looking here and it was estimated that 7,000 people were employed in the survey time period here, which represents a 31% increase over the 2012-13 total of 4,792 and slightly less than the high point figure of the workforce of 6,865 in 2007-2008. Do you guys know if that massive decrease after 2007, 2008 was attributed to the housing crash um, that we experienced yeah. here in the United States. I would assume it was. Yeah. But I didn't know if, no. yeah. Okay. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Yeah. And is it just taking that long to recover from that? Yeah. Okay. So there's slightly different across different subsectors. So like local authority, local planning authority, archaeologists. So, you know, the equivalent of like a shippo and tippo. Mm-hmm. That's funded by local government, and they've just they've been cutting since 2006, wow. and they only just stopped cutting jobs maybe like two years ago, and kind of slightly added like two. Um, it's a little more than two jobs, but like yeah, they they've been you know that's all political, ideological cutting red tape as it were. It's not red tape. We save developers billions of pounds each year. Because you know it's it's more expensive to do the archaeology when you have you know your piling machine waiting there, eating up a hundred thousand pounds each day that it's idle, uh, while the archaeology gets taken care of. So there's that. National government has shrunk as well. So like, even though most of that's coming from development led, like seventy mm-hmm. percent of the jobs are in contracting and consulting, and that's not counting like the local authority, the sort of shippo tippo aspect. That's you know, seventy percent of the jobs are there. That's gone up, but also like national government has cut again ideological, they've cut a lot of jobs as well. So 
the recovery coming back up has been slowed down because a lot of the other subsectors have also just continued to lose jobs. And we didn't start our recovery in terms of like housing, kicked it off 2015. So mm-hmm. like, you know, 2008 to 2000, well, it basically bottomed out around 2012, 13, started coming up a little in 14, really took off in 15, and has been gangbusters since then, all the way till now. And like right now, people are desperate for staff. And it's rough trying to find people at the moment. But mm. yeah, it, it took a really long time for the recovery to happen. And that's only because they pumped in billions of pounds and subsidies for housing, house building that really kicked that off. So yeah, it's um, okay. it's been a rough decade. <laughs> well, that being said, I'm looking at the salary section now. And every time I see a job post over on Badger or something like that, I'm like, my God, that seems low because they always post jobs in terms of annual salary, even if it's only a few week long project. And that's something that's a little different than how we post jobs over here. We're more concerned with what's the hourly rate in the per diem. But when I see those, they're often in the you know mid to high 20s in pounds. Uh, so mid to high 20,000s in pounds, uh, maybe low 30,000s, depending on the job that you're that you're looking for. But it says here that the annual, the median archaeological salary was $28,500. And it looks like that was um, 104% of the UK national average, which is crazy. I didn't realize the UK national average was that low. For all I know, the US national average is that low either. I don't know the numbers here either, but I would imagine it's it's got to be close as a whole country goes. But what do you what do you think about that? Because that looks like, according to the data here, it says that was 10% higher. Is anybody reading that right? Oh, it says the 2012-13 equivalent figures showed that um, the average archaeologist salary was 85% of UK average in 2012-13. So in the past less than a decade, salaries have gone up by quite a bit, it looks like, compared to the average. Uh, that... Um... It's your numbers. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, but I'm trying to explain. The only reason it looks better is because archaeology has basically kept up with inflation, but a lot of other sectors in the UK have done worse. Mm, so okay. it, it's not really, it's not necessarily good news for archaeology. It's just bad news for other people. Yeah, and, and like, you know, we, we looked at it over the years and there's slight variations you see. So, uh, like 2012, 13 was a little low below the the line, so maybe we were just slightly under. Now we're slightly over, but we also do like there's a there's a graph on the website where you can basically look at like percentiles, so like tenth percentile, twentieth, thirtieth, mm-hmm. all the way up to ninth percentile for archaeology jobs versus like all the UK or versus construction. Sure. And archaeology does better for the bottom half, so like the very bottom were better than like the UK average and a lot of other sectors. And then once you hit like the middle, we usually like the UK national statistics agents use agency uses the median. Uh, so that's your, your exact midpoint of like, you know, 50% of the people earn less, 50% earn more because when you get to salaries and averages, like one person earning a million pounds will drag up that average a lot mm. Because yeah. you can't, you can't have people earning negative, like you, you, you. Well, 
<laughs> I, I guess you could technically have people earning negative, but As they're not, not how they're reporting it, not how they're getting <laughs> the data. So like you can't go the other way. So it always pulls up the the average. Um, so yeah, the average is like for the UK is like 5,000 pounds more. It's like 30,000. Yeah. And basically, but the problem with archaeology is like 80% of the jobs are between 20 and 40,000. Like eighty percent of all the salaries mm-hmm. for, and this is, and we're we're talking like people that have thirty, forty years of experience. Like it's a it's a really tight range. So like yeah. archaeology starting out is better than minimum wage, and we're better than a lot of jobs. And that's not necessarily a good thing. It just means that other sectors, other jobs are more crap when it comes <laughs> like in a lot of different things. And so. Yeah. Um, I mean, archaeologists, we love to complain, but like we are better off than a lot of jobs. And then mm-hmm. what happens is like our top end is just horrible. Like there's not a lot of uh, room to grow. So like, you know, Chris, when you're talking about like that, um, you know, we all know that field tech who's been doing it for 20 or 30 years, maybe they're a crew chief or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you account for inflation, they're after, you know, like 20 or 30 years, they're probably making only like a couple of thousand more than when they started yeah. over a year. That's true. I mean, that's that's horrendous. Like, you know, if you had yeah. 30 years of experience doing whatever you do and to be making marginally more than when you started. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the problem. I'm pretty sure that's, you know, we haven't done the numbers for North America. We really want to. But like in the UK, that's that's horrendous. It's basically like, you know, you could work your entire lifetime and just be making a little bit more than when you started out. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you know, maybe a bit more, maybe 20%, maybe 30% more, but that's still <laughs> not a lot of weight. Like, you know, there's not a lot of room to grow. And most of that is like when we look at the wages by sectors, again, like development-led. Well, okay, so development-led, you can split into two, like actually doing the field work and consulting. And consulting pays a lot more money and it's better. But like... Yeah, we, we did the, the numbers for the different subsectors. And yeah, you basically, if you want to make make money, um, mm-hmm. like it's even worse. Like in contracting, six about 60% of the jobs are between 20 and 30,000. And so mm. if you were to convert that to dollars, um, that's like less than 30. So it's only like the pound to dollar at the moment is like 1.4. So like, you know, if you're... You're making between twenty eight thousand and maybe under forty five, mm-hmm. and that's like you know, that's the majority of salaries in you know doing field work, lab work as well, and that's that's for pretty much everyone. That's that's rough. You know, knowing that knowledge, like knowing that there's a limit of uh, upward mobility as far as salary and stuff like that. And using what Doug was saying as an example, do I mean, what do you recommend folks who are at that five to 10 year stage? Do they just stick it out and try to make it up to the, you know, 20 year stage? I mean, we talked about choosing companies where you'd like to work and everything, but we all know that as you get older, you're not going to be able to go out on projects and stuff. And so there's even fewer people at every company that's actually back at the office doing most of the contracts and all that other stuff. So you know, do you, what do you all think about that? Should folks think about, you know, transitioning to another industry where they're probably going to have to put in another 10 years to even get to the, you know, 
higher levels of that? Like Mm -hmm. what's the alternative? What can we all do about that? I personally think that we're too, I say this for like pretty much all countries. um, We're too stuck on a very narrow type of job. So you basically either go into academia of which there's like 10% or you go into CRM and, you know, there's various jobs in CRM. You can do field work, contractor, you can be a consultant or you can be on like the Shippo, Tippo, National Park, BLM sort of aspect of it. But I honestly think that probably the, the greatest shame, okay, not the greatest shame of archaeology, but currently is that like we don't diversify. So mm-hmm. basically people either decide they're going to do this one very particular job and of which there's a limited amount or that's it. Like they don't really sort of plan out like, you know, how can we create different jobs in archaeology? And so like, you know, one thing we're seeing is actually like, you know, public archaeology is becoming a bit bigger. It's growing slowly. It doesn't actually employ that many people, but it's it's becoming a bigger thing. And I kind of wish that more archaeologists would look around and say, you know what, there are other jobs we could create or other professional avenues we could pursue still staying in archaeology that's not this very narrow CRM or academia. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just sort of my personal thoughts on it. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Doug. I think we're finding out and the, the data seems to support this and anecdotal evidence seems to support this. But this is not the kind of job where you start working when you get out of college, regardless of what degree you have. But you start working when you get out of college and you move up the corporate ladder and then you're you're retired. I mean, in some cases, that can't be true. But I think this is more the kind of job if you're to look across a broad spectrum of the entire workforce this is the kind of job where you kind of have to specialize. You have to come up with something that you're really interested in and you have to pursue that maybe on your own, maybe with a company, if you can, if you can, if you can get that going. But I hate to say it, but there's a lot of passion in this job because passion is kind of a bad word sometimes because it doesn't always mean that you'll be able to pay your bills (laughs) just because you're passionate about something, but there really is right. Like that's what kept me going is podcasting. You know, I, I, I started this podcast and actually the one before this, I don't know, five, six years into the business, right? Six, seven years into the business because I just needed something else that was going to keep me going while I was being a field tech, right? And then, you know, once I got my master's degree and moving on from there, but it's, it's always something. The people that you see that are still doing this, to be honest, they're publishing, they're presenting, they're, they're doing something that might be relatively unique in an area or region or in the profession as a whole, they're continuing to stay interested in that way. And I think that's, personally, I think that's the key to success. There are those career tracks, largely government and federal, where you can get into a job and have a nice retirement and work for the rest of your life. There are big companies you can work for where you can move up the ladder, become a principal investigator and have a good cushy job for the rest of your life. I mean, there are those jobs, but not everybody can get those. Just like Bill talking about professor jobs. There are those really great jobs that you can get at a nice university that has good funding. You can do all these things, but there's just not that many of them, right? So you can't count on that. You have to count on kind of making your own path, I think. I'd also add like, so when we 
if you look at the profile on the profession website, we also like compare stats. So it's not just archaeology because people look at the archaeology numbers and they're like, this is really bad. But like when we're talking about the numbers for money, it's just really bad for everyone, not just archaeology. <laughs> and I think people get their blinders on. But like what we're describing probably now accounts for – I mean, we, we could pretty much – if we just like switched out like the word archaeology for just like jobs, we could put out this episode and it would probably be applicable to like 80, 90% of people out there. Could be. Um, like, like there are – other than this – you know, a couple of government jobs where you could sort of somewhat move up, but even that's not guaranteed because, you know, to move up, someone else has to like retire basically or yeah. move on to somewhere else. Like th- that doesn't exist. Like the 1950s haven't, you know, it's, it, we're, we're like 60 years removed from the idea of like a career for life or a job for life with one organization. Even, even the big companies that, um, had that don't have that anymore ibm basically has gotten rid of almost all their people general motors like like all these companies that you could potentially have a career for life with like one organization i can't think of many (laughs) private sector organizations where you could possibly still do that where they haven't like gutted the companies and laid off like 10,000 X, you know, the older workers uh, for someone new or outsourced or like, I mean, I don't mean to get really depressing here, but I think what we're giving here is not just like archaeology advice, but like life advice, career (laughs) advice for pretty much everyone. Yeah. I think the times of, (laughs) the times of coming home from work and you know, saying hi to the kids and having dinner and going out and working in the lawn or in your tool shed or something and, you know, or, or crafting or doing whatever you're going to do and calling that the plan for the rest of your life. Those times are gone, right? For most people, those times are over. I feel like you need a solid backup plan. It doesn't mean you need to be side hustling a job after work every day, but maybe kind of, right? Something that could possibly bring you income, at least in a short term, that you actually enjoy doing as well. You know, it's maybe not something that's going to bring you $40,000 a year or even $20,000 a year. But if you get laid off and you're transitioning, you've got something else to keep you occupied and keep you going for a little while. I think, I mean, not everybody can do that, to be honest. But I think if you want to be successful and employed and happy in your life, then kind of finding what that is for you, what that means for you is is a good plan for success. So... Anyway, we could keep talking about this for a long time, and, and we only barely scratched the surface on profiling the profession. So check out that link in the show notes and read through it. I'm, I have no doubt that we will probably talk about this again at some point in the future and uh, just keep kind of hammering on these numbers. So anyway, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye.
See you later. <laughs> Doug came back online right as we finished saying that. He uh, better hurry. There's no controls on whether he's going to be able to say bye. No, I'm, I'm about to hit stop recording. Right. So. He, he did say it earlier. Oh. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> he's just in and out. I'm stopping it. He probably you said it. I'll have it on the recording. Oh, <laughs> no. yeah, we, got we got it. All right. Cool. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.